Welcome to Culture Crawl ATX Podcast. I'm your co-host, Michael Ward Jr. And this is Donald Scott II. You know, and we talk about the digital divide and kids needing computers. But kids needing computers is, is, is only the tip of that iceberg. Uh, the struggle of a parent trying to pretend like they're a, a, a homeschool teacher or even have any clue what to do with their own children uh, <laughs> is lost <laughs> on the group. And, um, and so, you know, one, being a parent, but then also two, being a teacher. Not, and, and I say teacher very specifically, not an educator that may be in, in administration or peripherally aligned to the schools, but actually being a teacher also with children uh, is not a perspective that is captured from a first person conversation. We keep, you know, I have talked to a few and I read about it. And I've seen that a majority of the language either comes from parents talking shit or um, teachers being outraged, but it's like this collective group, but it's not talking about why the parents are talking shit or why the teachers are outraged. It's just like this, this conflict that's been given to us for us to consume. And then, you know, if I talk with a business owner, for example, uh, that person was saying, teachers should go back to school so that parents can work so that they come spend money at my establishment. Right. And that is what the media has basically said. But the conversation around what virtual learning actually looks like, what teachers are doing to prepare, what the stress response is for them, uh, we've not heard. And so, um, so that is what, not, not necessarily that you're stressed, but I think it would be important for well, people to I hear am, like your, your experience, and, and not just as we talk about getting back into school, but March and April, Right, people forget that in March, kids went on spring break <clears throat> and never went back to school. Uh, and so, e virtual learning has been happening since then, and that was a, an immediate shift for teachers. And now, all summer, I don't know what you guys have been up to. Would love to hear. And then now it's time for school to start, and it's still like this chaos. That is a good word to describe what's going on right now, for sure. Um, so like I'm dealing with many different fronts of chaos. So there was all summer sort of not knowing what was going to happen with our own kids and, and the school system in Suffern where we live. Um, and then also not knowing what was going to happen in, um, in the fall in New York city, which is still a complete disaster. Um, we there has still been no calendar even put out for the school year um technically normally the school year in new york city starts the day after labor day which would be a week from today mm. and there's no calendar put out we actually don't know when, when school officially starts um like the day after labor day usually teachers go back for two days and then the kids usually come in that thursday um but there's nothing actually in writing anywhere that says that that's happening. Right now, as we speak, the union is in discussions over a strike. Um, mm. Nice, because, heard it here first, Culture <laughs> <ATX>. <laughs> Um It is, uh, I was on a, I, I basically like this summer has been 
productive and extremely unproductive for me because um, we're not, we don't know what's going on and we haven't been given enough information to plan appropriately for either situ whatever the final situation will be. So as of right now, officially, according to de Blasio, the mayor, everyone is going back to school, either like students in New York City have the option of either staying remote um, 100% or doing some form of blended or hybrid learning. And there are many problems with both situations, but the hybrid learning in particular is a complete disaster. So <coughs> de Blasio like recently said that uh, basically we're gonna see how the blended learning goes to then decide whether or not to open restaurants. So basically it's clear that <laughs> the system is going to be the guinea pig and the students and teachers and staff um, to see if they can open the rest of um, New York. Um, there are not enough school nurses uh, for every school to even have a nurse. Um, he's refused. Mm. They're not, there's, they're doing testing. This is probably the funniest, uh, most absurd thing that I thought was a joke because it came out in the post, which is sort of a joke newspaper, but is true. And I've heard through word of mouth from other teachers who've seen it actually happening or principals have seen it happening in their schools that the way they're testing to see if the ventilation is appropriate or functioning is with toilet paper on a stick. Um, What does that so mean? They're, from my understanding, they're literally taking like a popsicle stick with like toilet paper attached to it and holding it up to a vent and seeing if it blows. I'm not really sure. They really refuse to officially explain their strategy, but like I thought it was, I thought it was an article from The Onion when I first saw it posted. <laughs> it's not. Um, there is a... Uh, a chance that there will be up to 9,000 layoffs in the city, 2,000 of which would be teachers. Um, they have not like agreed to mandatory COVID testing. So um, the safety, and there are many other, and then if this is just like health-wise, the issues, then of course, curriculum and instructionally are a disaster. Um, so for example, <coughs> excuse me, um, the, like I have 30 to 32 students in each class. And so in other districts, such as my kids' school district, they are able to make a schedule that would have, be like an A-B situation where there are two different groups that are rotating in some form. Um, but in the city, the classes are so large that they can't do that because you can't socially distance um, with more than like 10 to 12 kids in a class. So. Mm -hmm we would have to have three groups rotating throughout uh, the week. And so basically we spent, I spent part of the summer making phone calls to parents, asking like the principal came up with two different options, asking their opinion on those two different options. The options were either for our school to either have the kids come in two days on and four days off so that there could be three rotations of two days. Mm, okay. um, so that, in itself is a problem for many people because for example if a kid goes to school on monday tuesday they're home wednesday thursday friday and the following monday 
and then they come in Tuesday, Wednesday. So childcare is completely. Oh, no way. So you can't even schedule in the long term a natural daily or weekly schedule. Right. Right. You um, know, um, I was. <sighs> who's making these ideas up? So that, that schedule, um, there, were, there was another schedule that was offered to parents, which was basically like a kid would come in two days a week, basically over a three-week rotation, they would come in five full days, which is the same, the same thing. So basically they would come in two, like two days a week for the first week, two days a week the second week, and one day the third week. And at least that could be more consistent because then you could say you're coming Monday, Wednesday, Monday, Wednesday, Monday, or something like that. Right. right? So the childcare could be consistent, but in terms of planning and teaching is a disaster. So anyway, our school decided on the two days on four days off, but in terms of planning for teachers, it's a mess. Um, and so, and, and, one of the bigger issues, sort of a global issue in New York City is that, well, there are many, but they've said that if the COVID um, test numbers are under 3%, then schools will stay open. If they hit 3%, then they'll have to close. And right now in New York City, it's about 1% on average. However, where I teach in the Bronx, it's higher than 3% or mm. right at 3%, you know, so, you know, the the numbers are sort of being obscured by this data. Um, and so that's one of, one of the larger problems, but the way that we've had to adjust is that, oh, and in addition, before I go back to how we've had to adjust the, um, the student, the number of students that have opted out of going to school, like the, the mayor keeps arguing. And I think nationally people are arguing that, um, the students who are most affected by having to do remote learning are students who are lower income, who don't have access to Wi-Fi, et cetera. Um, but more often, those students are also students whose parents are essential workers and mm -hmm. who have been more affected by COVID. So I actually, we actually see that throughout the city that students of color are, um, their families are more likely to actually choose to keep their children home, whereas the white families are more likely to choose to send their kids to school because they've seen firsthand um, how this has affected their own family or, you know, people around them. And so even though those students who don't have as much access in general might need in school, their parents are much more aware of the risks and are much less willing to be sending uh, or likely to send them to school. So yeah, that makes sense. <clears throat> it's like uh, when we think about what we believe the assumption is for children who don't have access to the technology most likely and most likely have parents who wouldn't be at home anyway, those children are the ones that would opt out of coming into school. Whereas, and, and definitely I, I see it here in, in my neighborhood, which is I would call semi-affluent relative to the larger community um in talking with the parents the only ones in, inside of socioeconomics where it says we are we all have internet that let's call that affluent we have internet at home and devices 
the only kids who are actually staying at home because their parents want them to are those who are minorities knowing that or at least seeing in the media that minority the minority population is most widely affected the the parents um who who are uh or white parents i would say white white household white families uh are more invested in sending their kids into school <laughs> heavily because they don't want their kids in the house right. but also because they know that education is best in person and mm -hmm. anything else is disruptive at best um, one question i have why is the mayor the primary voice rather than the school superintendent because I, I haven't so heard you mention the superintendent. <clears throat> yeah, I haven't mentioned him, but they're basically working in tandem. And I think the school superintendent can't make those decisions without the mayor's approval. Okay. So they're um, they are on the same page. Even the governor. Um, so the governor, who is, you know, made national news for mm -hmm. his own handling of this. And I have generally little respect for, and I have tiny tiny bit more respect for but overall not so much there's a lot of issues with him um just for in terms of how he's handled things since like they should have shut down schools earlier when when our school shut down we did, we were not on spring break um and we were in the school i was in the school on march 12th and i remember sitting there like teaching a small group at the end of the hallway and our assistant principal was going around there at this point there are already a few students or sort of the attendance rate was slightly lower as parents were starting to get nervous and the, t the principal was going around trying to like have conversations with each literally every single class to see how they're feeling and kind of answer as many questions as she could with facts um because they've been hearing so many rumors and then we and then that actually turned out to be the last day of school as they decided like sunday night from with pressure from the teachers union etc to shut the schools down but they didn't completely shut the schools down because they made teachers go back in for two days um during the following week to distribute um devices to kids and to kind of plan and figure out how this was going to go even though the planning could have obviously happened um over zoom or whatever yeah. And so, like, there was a teacher in there wearing like a full-on gas mask, like she was at a uh, riot. Like it was, it was, it was crazy. And we sat in the gym, six feet apart. Like everyone brought a chair into the gym, and um, you know, it was very sort of apocalyptic to be in the mm. school building. Um, and even though parents say that, you know, obviously being in person is best, and I, I fully, I mean, we all know that teaching is better in person. I don't, I mean, the way that things are now, like the kids can't share supplies, they can't mm -hmm. be with each other. So, and in terms of having the, the nightmare of the planning, the kids will basically be six feet apart, but we're still going to have them on their laptops doing most of their work. It's just that there's going to be a teacher there facilitating it. And you know facilitating some of the conversations like they can't turn to be in groups you know i am a math teacher and we do almost everything in groups and they mm. work cooperatively with manipulatives etc like you know it was very hard last year to teach um one of the units which was uh like 3d shapes uh 
virtually without manipulatives for kids to understand how surface area um, is represented and, and volume. Mm. Like that was really challenging. Um, but it's not going to look, I don't think that the experience is going to be significantly different for the students who chose to be remote um, than it will for the students who chose to be in person because our principals basically said, look, like it's not possible to plan different lessons for the kids who are in person and the kids who are at home because there just aren't enough teachers for that. They've basically taken a, a class of 30 and turned it into three classes. Um, right. So you can't have three different lessons without, th you know, three teachers. So they're not um, asking you guys to do three times the work for, for uh, lesser pay. Uh, my school is not. Um, many other schools, I'm sure. Well, the, the mayor is. the may So the prince, I, I know that, like, I spent the whole summer with it sort of in a, you know, a quarantine of our family and our neighbors who are also teachers. Um, both are teachers. One is a teacher in the city as well. And the other one is a teacher in New Rochelle. So I've basically seen how three different districts are handling this. Um, and they, they all basically have gone through the process of trying to figure out how to make this work for kids, but it just isn't, they, the administration doesn't really, and hasn't really answered how, like, physically you are going to be able to interact with these kids like mm -hmm. all of these children so for example there is you know i say about over 50 percent of my students are going to be at home right so they're going to need teachers teaching them like they would normally in school so that's one group of teachers then there's another group of teachers that has to go into the building and teach the you know the classes of 10 kids that chose to be in person but they're still having a full schedule in the building. So that's a different group of teachers that has to teach them. You can't teach them and teach the remote kids at the same time. Um, and then now de Blasio or, or Carranza, who's the, um, the school's uh, chancellor, added in a third uh, group, which is the group of teachers who are teaching the students who would have been in person, right? Like those students, for example, in our group who were, home for four days before they come back in for two days are going to need another group of teachers. Holy so where are all cow, these teachers dude. coming from? They don't exist. And I heard <laughs> um, you say exactly. that they are going to um, do layoffs. How can you lay off teachers <laughs> in the middle of a teaching crisis or yeah. education crisis, let's call it that. Yeah. And there are many teachers around the country that are quitting um, because you know, if they can afford to quit um, or have yeah, an, that's right. another income because they don't want to go back into the building. I have neglected to mention also that I, uh, one of the other major stresses for me this summer is that I'm actually in a higher risk pool of teachers. Mm. Um, I'm on medication that it makes me immunocompromised. And so I did not want to go back into the school building. I mean, people who aren't immunocompromised don't want to go back, but I especially didn't want to go back. And my principal knew that about me. And she said, you are not coming back here. Like, I don't know how we're going to do it if they don't approve you to stay home, but like, there's no way I'm letting you back in the building. So um, 
all summer we've been waiting for them to release the application. I've got to go to the doctor, get all this, you know, mm. proof of it. And then, and then waiting and waiting and waiting to find out whether I can stay home. And that answer about whether or not I was approved wasn't just affecting me. It was affecting our whole family because if I couldn't stay home, who was going to watch my kids? Either if they were a hundred percent remote and they're here every day. And my husband, who's also a teacher has to go into the school building because he's not immunocompromised. Uh, so who's going to watch them? And then um, our friends are, were also in the same boat. So I had agreed to, if I was approved to watch them as well. So I'm actually going to be like home, remote teaching with four kids in the house. <laughs> it is crazy. Uh, I was, yeah. Sorry for that. I'm not laughing because it sounds funny or humorous. I'm laughing I know, because I it know. sounds it, ridiculous. The whole situation oh is Oh my God. I would oh be laughing God. too, but I've been dealing with it all summer. So. Oh my God, dude. Like, so big... So we pulled the kids out. So for me, I'm just listening to this story is, is, um, is reinforcing one, the belief that people have no idea what we're asking of our teachers, especially, especially, especially our teachers with children. And then, and uh, to, to the same point, I knew that you and both you and Adam are teachers. So you guys are like double screwed. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and unable to prepare. Now, what I didn't realize, well, let me say like this, uh, well, a couple things. One, in, in our school district here in Pflugerville, um, I've heard that the high school teachers at the new high school have been quitting because, to your point, they don't need the income and they don't need the stress. Uh, and so what they're doing is the, the, the teachers who will actually be, who will be teaching, whether virtual or in person, will be substitutes. Um, oh, God. So that's, that's one thing. Um, second, I have a question for you. <clears throat> I was thinking that the reason that, well, first, I'm, I'm, I firmly believe that schools should not have opened and it shouldn't even be a decision. It's silly. But, um, okay, if we say that some teachers have to go in and some teachers don't go in, of course, you would not send the teachers who have their own compromise. I was personally thinking that it would be the older teachers who you would have to keep home because of the way they were well, telling the us about age. Older teachers are also allowed to apply. However, for example, the paraprofessional who has been through her own personal nightmare with this that was working with me last year, um, she is a um, breast cancer uh, survivor in remission and is over 60 and also has limited knowledge of technology, even basic things like checking her email, et cetera. And, uh, she applied, you know, and she lives in the Bronx and she went to her doctor, um, and asked for a doctor's note and applied and she was rejected. So she's like living a whole nother hell of trying to figure out how to get to another doctor you know, who would write an appropriate note when she showed me the note, you know, I was like, well, this is the difference between like high quality doctors um, mm. and others because her doctor like scrawled on a prescription pad, you know, so-and-so uh, is under my care. She had, you know, breast cancer or whatever. And that's it. But, like it didn't, <coughs> that was the end of the note. Um, and of course it that was should rejected. be enough. No, How it, is that not enough? 
well, my note, I showed her the difference between my note from my doctor, which basically I had printed out for myself, like the list of exactly the expectations they had to say, like what the diagnosis was, what the mm. treatment is, um, how uh, that is putting them at a higher risk, et cetera. It was a whole thing. And I showed her my note and she was like, oh, well, of course mine was rejected when, I, when she saw the difference between the two. But just the fact that she now has to go through this again is so stressful for her. I was on the phone with her yesterday. Yeah. She was crying hysterically after a union meeting because the union meeting with like the reps from our district had no answers at all. Nobody knows when school's starting. We don't know if we're going to eventually be remote. It's just the whole thing is a disaster. So there's actually you know, there's so many things happening for so many people. And then in addition to all of that, I also had, you know, was dealing with all the meetings going on in my own, in my, my kid's school district, trying to figure out what was happening there. And then when they finally decided they originally were going to be hybrid or they, they let people believe, or they left them under the impression that they were going to be hybrid, even though they planned for like three different situations, one being remote. Um, people were furious that they decided to delay the opening of school till the end of September, which I think was smart because they said, basically, we want to see what happens in other districts. We're not going to be mm. the guinea pigs. Right. Um, but now parents are freaking out because they don't have childcare. <laughs> um, and yeah. I mean, like, what are they oh, going to do? It's such a disaster. Right. Such and then disaster. like one of my friends who is lives is in this district and is a, um, a speech therapist uh, in another district looked into childcare for her kids. If she had to have them both in um, in the childcare center where Lila, my daughter was last year, um, if she had to send them there for the year to do remote learning because she would still be working, mm -hmm. it was going to cost thirty seven thousand dollars for the year. Yeah. Yeah. We've been seeing, um, I guess the YMCA will allow you to bring your child to their facility and then they'll have somebody monitoring your child while they do remote learning and they want $200 a week for that. Oh, that's cheaper than here. The Y here is charging $70 a day, which would be $350 a week. Wow. So yeah, when I... So, when I think about all of this and I just, and I hear the conversation and I really just think about it from a, um, from a humanitarian perspective, from a, from a health perspective, from a, you know, survival perspective, a lot of these solutions and decisions that are being you know, created or implemented across, across the country, it's just, it just doesn't have our, our people, our community, our, our youth in the, uh, in the best situation. It doesn't have their, their best, um, intentions in mind or they just guess the best outcome for them and it's just unfortunate and sad because as I hear about you know what's going on a lot of the decisions that are being done are so retroactive versus you know proactive because if we, we're having all these conversations about what really sounds like is it's a it's a lack of understanding of how to leverage technology because I agree with you Donald that right now we should not have a schools reopening but if you do not reopen schools, well, then now this impacts the, the parents. But if we actually take the time to invest in our youth or invest in our communities to give them the tech skills that they need so then we can 
have or so that we can leverage adaptive learning and other techniques, well, then now we'll be, we would have been in a better situation you know, for something like this. And this goes back into, you know, why don't we have universal health care? Why don't we have a better supported education system where our teachers now don't have to decide between putting their life at risk versus teaching their students? Um, and, and it is unfortunate that I do not hear or do not see enough conversations around reimagining higher ed. You know, the current system, the current framework that we've been using for X amount of years, it doesn't match up to the needs of the 21st century, especially the needs of the 21st century during a, a pandemic like this. Um, so I, I am hopeful that things would change, but I just see how the lack of right to decision-making or the lack of proactiveness has really put our, our society, you know, a couple steps backwards versus moving forward because we are only going to continue moving in this direction, whether it's more technology, more remote learning, more social distancing, whatever the case may be, you know, this direction is only going to increase, but we're not making the changes or the pivots that are necessary for our teachers, for our students, for our parents, and for our leadership within inside the education system. Yeah, so this, I mean, this summer had, had the mayor just decided, look, we're going to be remote in the fall, it would have, you know, people would have been able to plan um, what that was going to look like. But because they strung people along for so long and, and people were thinking that there was a chance they would be in person, mm -hmm. um, many and many teachers haven't, you know, prepared for that. And um, you can't, there was no very limited professional development given to teachers in the spring. Um, and it's kind of really a mishmash depending on what school you go to specifically. So like in our school, the, um, our principal basically said to us at the end of the school year, like wind it down, don't meet live with your students for the last like couple of weeks. You could check in with them in the beginning and then send them off to do um, asynchronous work because um, I want you to go and get your Google level one certification and basically decided that every teacher in our school, including the paraprofessionals, um, needed to be Google certified by September and gave us like the end of the year to try to start figuring that out. Um, because she, she knew that no matter what happens in the fall, like we're going to really need to be able to use those platforms. We actually, we're very lucky because um, most schools in the Bronx don't have the technology and we were able to give technology out to almost all our students. Like I had uh, Chromebooks from that I got from donors choose and I just, we just gave those out along with whatever other technology we had. Um, but our school had applied to Verizon for um, a grant to be part of this Verizon innovative learning um, school program. And what and and got the grant and so the grant um covers one-to-one -one chromebooks for every student and teacher in the school unfortunately we weren't getting those chromebooks until um september but we know that we have the technology to be able to work with students and so and included in that is also professional development for teachers on how to use it and how to sort of leverage um the best programs um, and and outreach to students through you know Chromebooks, 
but most schools don't have that. You know, like we, our school is, you know, a uniquely thriving middle school in the Bronx. Um, and so I think often about the other students, even the students in our school building in the other middle school downstairs um, and what they're not getting, um, you know, so it's a, it's a huge problem and there was no focus on preparing educators to, you know, teach remotely in any way. Like there was also a huge difference in, in, in terms of expectations. They, they really couldn't tell teachers exactly um, what they should be doing. And so there were some teachers in our school who literally didn't interact with kids or, you know, one-on-one during remote learning, whereas I was live with students over three hours a day. Um, So they couldn't enforce anything. And that also was a big problem, you know, so there's, there were so many issues. um, But I think one of the most important things is just keeping a connection with students. Like when I was one of the times when I was live with a student, he came on into class and he said, miss, I don't think I can come to school today. And he was kind of freaking out. And I said, what's wrong? And he said, you know, my, my father and my grandma been like, uh, have temperature and the ambulance is coming. Like his father and his grandma who lived in the same room, like who all slept in the same bedroom with him, had COVID and this kid is freaking out about coming to school. I mean, there were so many other things going on. And so for people to say like, why haven't they figured this out? They've had since March, like, no, we haven't had since March to figure this out. Like we were in crisis mode, just trying to make sure that everybody was safe and healthy and had food. Um, you know, so it, it's, there, there's been no time given to really prepare teachers for the fall as it is, which is another reason why I think things need to be remote because it, it does free up a little bit of time for teachers to actually do professional development. Hey, I want to, um, uh, let me give a little time check. We probably have 15, um, cause I have to jump on a call at nine, but I want to go back to that strike that you mentioned. Yes. Uh, I was under a strike in over 45 years in New York city. I, I said to another teacher friend, uh, this would be the perfect opportunity for teachers nationally to strike not only because of the health and mental health well-being of of the people as employees but also because it would force in some form or fashion the reimagining of our education system because i think right now parents are uh way more sensitive to how important the schools, the school district, the school leadership, and the teachers specifically are to their functioning day to day. And so I guess my question is, uh, what do you think about the strike? Uh, would you, I assume you'd support the strike, but then like, how do you, um, how do you as a teacher being someone who is empathetically caring for not only the student, but also the family and the community, as you know, how does that cause conflict if there's any? I mean, I think, I think within our personal community, within like my own school, that we would have a lot of support from parents. 
Um, but that's because we spend so much time building relationships with families. Like I know every single family and, and our school really thinks deeply about how to build relationships with kids um, to the point where they decided in June, regardless of what was going to happen in September, that the entire school was going to loop, um, which basically means that every seventh grade teacher would become an eighth grade teacher every sixth grade teacher would become a seventh grade teacher. And then the eighth grade teachers would become sixth grade teachers so that we were staying with our students. So like, you know, which is obviously a huge challenge when it comes to curriculum, because you have to learn a whole new curriculum unless you've taught the grade before. Um, but what was most important is maintaining relationships with students. And with this uncertainty, that was something that was really important. So I think that, because I've, you know, I'm still making phone calls to those families of my students who, and those families still don't even know that I'm actually going to be their student's teacher this year. Um, they, they understand what we're going through. They've seen, they see us as people. I had my kids show up on, you know, our Google meetings all the time. Like, you know, it's, it's very much a family atmosphere. I don't think that's necessarily the case, going to be the case for all schools in New York City, and it definitely wouldn't be the case for the, all schools in New York State. Um, there was a lot of uh, vitriol thrown at um, teachers and administrators in um, the school district where my kids go to school. So um, it's, I don't think that there would be the same kind of national support, especially with, uh, you know, the current administration and leadership and the way they have zero respect for teachers, I think that would really fan the flames. And I don't know how successful it would be at this point, to be honest. Um, but the, the, the decision of whether or not there will actually be a strike, I think is going to be, might even be made tomorrow. It's unclear. Um, and if we strike, you know, there's a law in New York City basically saying that teachers are not allowed to strike called the Taylor Law. Um, and if teachers do strike, they can be penalized um, two days of pay for every day that they strike. So um, there are a lot, a lot of teachers that do not want to go on strike because they can't afford to go on strike. You know, Adam and I were actually really lucky because we had a steady source of income during this whole thing, but teachers who are married to someone else that did not have a steady source of income, you know, are not in the same boat, you mm. know? So um, we actually, you know, I think saved money during, you know, which is rare during this time because we didn't have to pay for commuting. I didn't have to pay for childcare because the kids were home with me. So, but that's not the case for people who, you know, don't have two teachers in the house. Um, so a lot of people do not want to strike. And I don't even know, I think, I don't know if everyone, you know, if it would be supported. I don't think they know that the union leadership knows whether it's um, going to be supported. But if they do strike, I will definitely strike. Like I'm not going to, you know, I wouldn't be the one to cross the picket line. Like, and, you know, I, I'm in a, a fortunate situation, but that's not the case for all the teachers. And there were 75 teachers and staff who died from COVID in the beginning of this. Oh um, my goodness. Yeah. Because, right. I forgot even. Um, right. For, 
Yeah. I have um, even forgotten that, right, on top of the fact that we're talking about education, people's lives have been lost inside of the school districts and the, the, not only the families, but also the children and the school communities have been affected by that loss. Right. Exactly. And, and what I would say to that is that that is what is the, the most important thing to me. And I definitely understand financial restraints, definitely understand political restraints. But when we talk about, you know, life or death, there are decisions that are being made that are impacting whether or not someone continues breathing. And I think that is the most important thing. However, it's difficult to think about that or focus on that when you're trying to provide for your family, when you're thinking about your student's education, right? So there's all these other, other important issues for sure. When we think about the most important thing, that is where a lot of the division comes in because for any successful strike, any successful change or break of status quo, it's gonna come from a united front. So on the teacher side, on the parent side, on anyone that is promoting change, right? It needs to happen on a unified front. And this is the same thing we're even seeing when we talk about ending systematic racism, when we talk about ending a, a lot of the way our society was pre-COVID is that, hey, we don't wanna go back to that type of mentality Instead, we need to focus on addressing these issues and creating long-term solutions that have the best interests of our society in mind. And that means starting with, okay, what do we need to do from a health perspective to make sure our teachers and our students and our parents are safe because they're the ones that are going to be, you know, either restarting another wave of COVID. Have we seen when I think UNC, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, opened up and they had to close that I think within a week and then Notre Dame and other colleges follow suit so like we know what's going to happen if we reopening back schools up so then let's create more let's create alternative solutions with a unified front because what I don't want to happen is that as you mentioned Scott you know some individuals have the privilege and the luxury of you know not going with or have the privilege of, of not having to need a, a paycheck from, from their current job because of their spouse, because of other um, income opportunities that are coming up, but not everybody has their privilege. And what we see by frontline workers is that people are deciding, am I going to not get a paycheck or am I going to go and risk my life in order to get a mm. paycheck? And I don't think as a government, as a society, we should be asking anyone to risk their life in order to generate a paycheck. We need to rechange and refocus how we are supporting our individual uh, citizens, our Americans, our people, and really see what can we do long term. Because what we are currently preparing right now is not a fix, is not a solution. And the same thing we saw happen between, let's call it, you know, beginning of August and March, is the same that we're going to see now in this second wave by us acting as if everything is normal and we're going to just do as as we've been doing for the past few. Um, few months or go back to how things were pre-COVID. Yeah. What, I, um, oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. I was going to ask, <clears throat> what's happening politically? So even if we, ignoring the strike, but knowing that the, I believe that the teachers, that the school district makes up the largest single organization employing people, doesn't that give some clout or weight to the school district um, in what, Albany? I guess that, that's y'all's state capital, right? Yeah. I mean, is there no conversation where, where the teacher's union or the, the teacher's lobbyists 
are pushing or it or no, no, our, our government doesn't work that way and, and teachers just get told what to do uh it it's so cuomo has basically sort of shirked responsibility where it comes to the schools he does not want to be the one to make the decision and have to deal with the blowback mm -hmm. um either way so he has left it up to the districts to like come up with a plan, which was part of what you know principals were doing all summer, was come up with a plan that addresses the safety, et cetera, um, uh, and all of the different um, things that could end up happening, whether it's remote or hybrid, et cetera, and submit it to the state. And um, on, I think the date that they had to submit that plan was August 7th, and when, on the due date, the New York City had my my own district that my my kids are in had submitted like a ninety page plan. <laughs> New York City submitted a thirty page plan for one point one million students, um, and like a hundred thousand staff uh, that didn't address many many issues of safety. Um, and Cuomo was like, if said himself, if my children were in the New York City public schools, I would not be sending them back. But he will not be the one, at least so far, to make that decision. He has put it on the mayor. We'll be getting started. Yeah, that I can see now why you mentioned uh, that, that the leadership hasn't stepped up. It sounds exactly like this Trump conversation where the governors are free to choose and then the governors are fighting with the mayors, right? And it's become this whole politicized issue, especially here in Texas. Um, yeah. Exactly. Right. Like that was happening yeah. with um, Keisha Lance Bottoms in, uh, in Atlanta right. with the right. Georgia governor as well. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's so unfortunate that they're tying so much political and financial restraints to people making decisions between what's ethical slash morally right versus what's the status quo. Mm -hmm. and, and, it's, and it's, and it always goes back to, you know, what type of people do we want to be? You know, what type of society do we want to be? And right now, this constant disregard and, and unappreciation of our teachers that are leading and developing their, their future generations of our entire society, to me, has always been one of, one of the saddest things in our society and how we treat our people. Of course, there's, there's plenty of other things that I'm also sad about. But this is definitely one of those because I've always believed that it's, you know, I love my teachers. My teachers growing up, you know, definitely shaped, you know, who I am today. I had a huge impact um, on the type of person that I was. And, and, you know, quick shout out to my math teacher. Sky, I heard you say you're a math teacher, so I love math teachers. <laughs> um, so I definitely just see, see the respect and, and what's needed. But, you know, once again, our government doesn't necessarily make the right decisions. And, and it just, it's just sad and it's unfortunate because I see the division and I see the appreciation and now people's lives, you know, are being taken away or, you know, being put into jeopardy. And, and that just opens up another can of worms. So one solution, or at least that we have um, within our own school, our plan or one of the, I guess, the pluses of this happening, if there could be any, is that um, we assume that there will not be any state testing. And if there is, our principal has basically said, I don't care and is allowing us to teach what we want. So we've decided that the first um, 12 weeks of school, basically up till and a little bit past the election, um, students are going to be focused on three things. One is learning um, the technology of their new laptops and expectations and digital, digital citizenship. 
The second is trauma-informed social-emotional learning. And the third is um, the academic part is just going to be a unit on the election, an interdisciplinary unit on the election. And so that's what I've been working on this summer, along with many other teachers in my school who are not getting paid to uh, create this curriculum. But um, so as a math teacher, I'm going to be, we're going to be teaching them about the electoral college, about gerrymandering, about misleading data and statistics, and, um, and just sort of really trying to um, develop informed citizens who learn their worth and, and learn how to speak up. And so I've, you know, uh, Donald, we talked about Mondaire and um, how important it was for me uh, to have him elected and, and that I like volunteer with his campaign. So I reached out to Mondaire and he's gonna come talk with the kids. We've reached out to their new representative um, in the Bronx who has also agreed to come talk to the kids. And so like, we're really focusing on um, citizenship and, and power and learning how to stand up to, um, you know, structures in government uh, that are sort of uh, pushing them down. So that's, that's what we're doing to, on a daily basis to sort of help the next generation become <clears throat> activists. That, um, we're gonna wrap up here, but that was an amazing, what, what would have been an amazing segue into talking about how we teach our children about civics and civic engagement. Um, we may, I'll, I'll probably try to get you back on to talk about that because that sounds like something that's, that's extraordinary, uh, but also very unique that your, that your school chose to focus on teaching government and politics. Um, so we're going to wrap up. I have to jump on a call, <clears throat> plus it's nine. So the, um, the last, no, yes, we definitely have to um, get back on the, on the horn and talk about that, because that's awesome. For sure. And the last thing I'll say to that is that it's not just teaching you know, government and politics, but it's teaching how to be an American citizen, mm -hmm. right? And, and this is what a democracy is. And we have not focused on democracy or being a citizen in our society for a very long time because that's how you keep people divided by not allowing them to really focus on a common goal. And we've seen what has happened over the years because of that. I mean, that's how we got to where we are today. So definitely ways for us to talk about that more in detail. But Sky, I appreciate your time this morning. Not a problem. Thank you guys for uh, being so persistent. It was, it was it felt <laughs> a little bit therapeutic to talk about everything that we've been going through. Yep. Hey, that's the beauty of Culture Crawl ATX. Get you, get you there, the remedy and the therapy that you need. <laughs> it was good to talk to you guys. And on that note, we're going to close out of Culture Crawl ATX podcast. We thank you so much for listening. And we ask that you take this time to follow Culture Crawl ATX on Instagram and click that like button and follow on your favorite podcast listening platform.